There are many other tools that a historian can use to unravel the past, and indeed the following three methods have provided some of the richest, and in many cases the most accurate, details. Archaeology is the study of past peoples and societies from a purely material perspective. Despite what you may think or have heard, archaeologists are not concerned with prehistoric animals, like the popular Mesozoic dinosaurs. That is the domain of the paleontologists, though the two fields may share many methods. The historical evidence an archaeologist is looking for is in the earth and soil, where time and environment have overtaken the hands of workers and warriors and buried them away. What an archaeologist may find is nothing more than scraps. Indeed, there is a technical term for a garbage dump. They're referred to as middens. But on many occasions, the rewards are breathtaking. Entire cities buried in sand, horse-drawn chariots with horse and chariots still attached, beautiful frescoes, and even long-lost written documents. If I'm making things sound romantic, you'll have to forgive me. Much of archaeology's early history was treated this way, often by people who sought recognition or a source of personal riches. Interspersed among these individuals were dedicated researchers who truly wanted to know the past like the back of their hands. In the deepest ways, archaeologists face a tougher time reconstructing the past than traditional historians. The impression is given that a researcher working with scraps or pottery shards or fragments of wood has little to imagine or even to work with. Thankfully, archaeology nowadays is blessed with a rich back catalog of past sites and societies. One fantastic resource, for example, are the Human Relations Area Files, which include a database of archaeological traditions that can be used by students and researchers. I will put a link in the show notes. Many archaeologists have become specialists of a particular time period and locality, so what may look like useless pebbles to the layperson can be like diamonds. And if any artifacts happen to be in poor shape, they're kept away for future students. They may yet be diamonds themselves. Though the technology has changed dramatically, the methods of archaeologists have more or less remained constant. First and foremost, appropriate permission must be given by government officials or anyone else involved. Sometimes sites are found by accident on a person's property. Sometimes a construction project has to be delayed for fear of destroying a historic site. Because their targets are underground, the next step in an archaeological project is to do a survey of the area. Sometimes an old map or document must be consulted for clues on what to expect. Often a site is much too large to be seen from the ground, and drones or helicopters need to be used to fully observe a site. In the air, the team can conduct photographic or geophysical surveys, mapping out the land from above and looking for anything that might aid the eye. During a survey, it helps to plot out the desired excavation site onto a grid. This can be done with simple tools like string and posts of wood or nails. This ensures that any artifacts found are identified with their locations in the place where they were originally buried. If you want to reconstruct a historic site accurately, or even understand the circumstances that led to a site's demise, it helps to know where you found everything exactly. Archaeologists nowadays rarely excavate entire sites unless absolutely necessary. The process is long, costly, and inherently destructive. Rather than simply pick up a shovel and start digging, all possible excavation sites need to be carefully planned out and singled to the most appropriate spots as determined by the previous survey work. Then the work begins, digging vertically through parts of the soil and dirt to reveal any layers present. These layers correspond to specific points in time. The farther down you dig, the older the remains, or alternatively, the youngest layers are the newest. This is the law of superposition. 
At all times, there are workers cataloging recovered specimens, creating drawings and taking photos of the excavation process, and generally recording any information recovered. Often there are conservators on site as well, developing strategies to best collect fragile objects like pottery shards or thin human bones. Timing is key. Some archaeological sites are lifelong projects with researchers returning every few years or so, while others come and go, depending on what restrictions on time are present. The site of Little Egypt in Georgia, preserving Native American burial mounds from the pre-Columbian period, was only excavated twice before the construction of a local dam resulted in the site being flooded in and destroyed. Archaeology offers a materialistic look into the human past that is often missing from traditional historical practices, and when brought together sometimes the two can corroborate and expand our understanding. More often than not, the two can also cancel each other out. Usually it's the work of archaeologists that run historical records afoul. The anonymity of the subjects is prevalent as well. When you're dealing with periods of time that extend far beyond written records, it is impossible to know the names of any individuals found. Their careers and stories of demise, sure, but never the names. Not to mention the names of societies as well. Archaeologists have had to provide technical names to now lost cultures because they've been gone for so long that nobody survived to inform us about what those people called themselves. In this series, when I use names like Salutrian, Mississippian, or Afanasievo, I'm referring to archaeological terms, not the actual names of the societies themselves. Linguistics is the study of languages, and historical linguistics concerns the evolution of languages and how much or how little they have changed. Nowadays, learning a language is easy, and most countries today provide education for students wishing to learn any number of world languages. Back in the past, however, languages were often tied to specific societies. Whenever people had to move, they brought their language with them. Sometimes they came across new aspects in the places they traveled to or ended up inventing a new tool that had to be named. This was the way that new words were created, and these would have been taught to the younger generations, eventually becoming a basic part of the lexicon. In other cases, when people spread to new lands, they conquered and subsumed the local populations. If these people were to be integrated into the dominant culture, it made sense to teach them the dominant language, too. If the process is forced enough, the local languages may become extinct. But there were occasions when subjugated or enslaved peoples were able to incorporate the dominant language among their own, thus keeping their original tongue alive in a modified form. These Creole languages eventually developed into full languages in their own right. In the era of European colonization, several Creole languages formed with the most familiar being those among enslaved Africans in the Americas. Languages can also have cognates. These are words that share a common ancestor. Sometimes cognates stem from related languages, but they can also derive from completely unrelated languages too. The word for hurricane in English was created from the Spanish huracan, which itself stems from the Taino name for the god of hurricanes, Huracan. The Amerindian language of the Taino peoples, called Arawak, is as distantly related to Spanish as Spanish is from Mandarin Chinese. Cognates can be found everywhere. But there can also be false cognates as well. But there can also be false cognates as well. Two words that seem to be related in a common origin, but are actually completely different. So what does all this have to do with history? Simply put, when you study a language, or two, or three, you are reading the work of hundreds or thousands of years. The presence of certain words can reveal what sorts of items were used, or what animals and plants past peoples encountered. Historical linguists are also faced with the task of analyzing and classifying languages, 
trying to find the familial relationships between them. They have recognized that Spanish, French, Italian, and Portuguese share enough features that they belong to the same language family, called Romance. Similarly, Romance languages are similar to the Osco-Umbrian languages. This is a family that includes historic languages spoken in Italy that are now mostly extinct, but we have records of them from documents. So, the two language families are grouped together to an even larger family called Italic. And you can take it even further. By grouping languages in this way, researchers can reconstruct the evolutionary history of languages. And because in these pre-modern times, societies and their words were often closely knit, past movements of peoples can be deduced as well. It's not the most exact method, and many studies trying to tie languages to the movement of peoples have since been debunked, but it offers an accompanying body of information that, save for written documents, would otherwise be lost. The last method, the last method, and perhaps the newest, relatively speaking, is the use of DNA, or deoxyribonucleic acid, to study the past. All humans, indeed all living organisms on Earth, use DNA to house the genetic material needed to grow and reproduce. The field of biology has advanced tenfold in recent years, and the process of collecting and sequencing an organism's DNA is pretty mundane stuff. What fascinates scientists is the information that is available in the DNA, and what it can tell us about the past. Nearly all DNA sequences contain differences between each other, the result of copying errors during the process of DNA replication. These mutations remain in the genetic code, and when an organism reproduces, those mutations can be transferred from parent to offspring. Often a mutation does nothing in particular. Sometimes it alters the way a gene is displayed. Other times it can prevent a gene from functioning. When a mutation changes how a gene is expressed, it can have consequences on the organism that houses that genetic code. If the mutation provides a benefit for the organism, like it helps the animal or plant survive in its environment, then there is a likely chance that the mutation will be transferred again once that organism reproduces, and so on, until that change is present in the entire population. I'll be discussing the ramifications of this process in a later episode, but for now I want to illustrate why this process is important for the historian. In an individual's genome, that is their complete genetic code, there are a multitude of different mutations that have accumulated over time through that person's family history. Compare two people's genomes and you can see how much of their DNA are similar or different from each other. Biologists have been able to work out the average rate of mutations in human beings, and so they can examine two people's genomes and see how long it has been since those family lines diverged from one another. This is a bit of an oversimplification, but the basic idea is there. Human geneticists have now studied the DNA of millions of people from the past and present, and have been able to build enormous data sets that analyze the population histories of human beings. People are notoriously messy, however, and populations have often interbred with one another. This, the traditional historian, as well as the layperson, knows too well. We live in a vastly interconnected global ecosystem, and it is nothing for two people separated originally by vast expanses of land and water to meet up and start a family. And the opposite end of the relationship spectrum is unfortunately present as well. Years of study of historic societies have demonstrated a sickening trend of warring nations raiding a settlement, killing the men, and sexually assaulting the women. In time, the subjugated women give birth to children, and those children will eventually grow up and start their own families. All this complex history of genetic mixing can be found in human genomes, and researchers have been able to reconstruct the past movements and intermixings of populations. 
They have even been able to discover demographics of people who no longer exist in an uncontacted form. Again, I'll be elaborating on these discoveries in later episodes. Historic documents and records, archaeology, historical linguistics, and human genetics, the story of the human past and the methods used to uncover it has never been as rich and as fascinating as it is right now. To continue this episode, please go to part 3.